You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, a podcast thinking through the technology, philosophy, morality, and politics of the series Black Mirror. Welcome back to Black Mirror Reflections. I'm your host, Dr. J, and today I'm joined by Teen Yuen to talk about Playtest, the second episode of the third season of Black Mirror, which first premiered in 2016. Teen Yuen writes about trust, art, games, and communities. He's interested in the ways that our social structures and technologies shape how we think and what we value. He used to be a food writer for the Los Angeles Times, but he's currently an associate professor of philosophy at the University of Utah. And he has a brand new book out, Games, Agency as Art, which was just released from Oxford University Press. Now, I first met T a couple of years ago when I was invited out to Salt Lake City to give a talk on artificial intelligence and our imminent technological singularity. And he immediately stood out as the member of the audience who I wanted to chat up later. Lucky for me, we all went out for tacos and margaritas, and I got a chance to do just that. What's really great about interacting with T is that he somehow managed to preserve the two qualities that I love most about philosophers, but which often get trained out of us in our professional setting. One, the ability to remain genuinely curious, and two, the courage to chase after those things that we find curious, not to dominate them like some sort of intellectual whack-a-mole, but to see what other wonders they might inspire. So I'm really happy that T agreed to join me today to talk about playtests, and I'm very much looking forward to hearing what he has to say. Welcome, T. Hello, hello. Thank you for that lovely introduction. Okay. I remember those margaritas, by the way. (laughs) They were good. Hey, pretty good tacos. I mean, I feel like it's, it's a weird thing to say that I had really great tacos in Salt Lake City, but you know. Wonders never cease. Okay, so T, at the beginning of every episode of this podcast, I like to ask the guests to just briefly summarize the Black Mirror episode that we're going to talk about. So could you summarize Playtest? Okay, so Playtest starts with this American dude, Cooper, who's in a house, and it's very obvious that something sad has happened. It's not clear what's happened, but he's putting on his stuff, and there's like it's shot in the way that reveals it some tragedy which i'm sure we're gonna find out about has unfolded and he's like setting up his backpack and he's clearly like working something out so he goes on this like backpacking journey through like australia and there are all these like instagram shots he's having a good time and he finally ends up in london he like does some in like some generic off-brand version of tinder and meets sonia who's a journalist Uh, they hook up he finds out she's a gamer and then he realizes he's out of money like, oh, my God, his bank account's going, something's happening. So he goes, goes back to Sonya, and they're hanging out, and he discovers he, like, tries to go on this odd jobs app, and he discovers that, oh, there's a really highly paying odd job at Saito Games. And Sonya, who's, you know, a journalist who does games, she's like, oh, my God, Saito Games, such a big deal. They're so cutting edge. Don't you know? They made this horror game. So he goes, and it turns out, oh, and she's like, get, get, get us some if you get us a picture, right, like we can get you a ton of money for a picture of whatever they're cooking up in Saito games. In the background this whole time, his mom has been calling and he's been auto responding to his mom with a dismissal. With a, I mean, this isn't how my iPhone works. It's an auto response to her where he presses a button and it's like, 
no, I'll talk, call you back later, whatever. So he goes to the place. It's all Silicon Valley. It's in some really creepy old school mansion. When I was watching it, my spouse shouted, oh my God, I see it in Downton Abbey. Anyway, <laughs> so very quickly we find out this is some intense stuff. He has to sign all these NDAs. In the key moment, he meets Katie, right? Who's the, the person that's going to walk him through all of the technology. And Katie's like, you have to give me your phone. No, you sign an NDA, no phones allowed. She turns off his phone. It's important. And then they're in, she leaves the room for some reason. And he like quickly turns his phone back on and does some shots of the technology. So eventually what it turns out is they're embedding some kind of neural net technology in, you know, the back of his neck. Uh, he's trying to play it cool. He's, by the way, it's really important that he's like, kind of the only white guy. I don't quite know what to make of this, but he's like this very American bro dude, white guy, and everyone else. So Katie is, who's in the company is black. The person that owns the company is very Japanese and is played as like the super Japanese guy. Like he's the only white guy. I don't know what to make of that, but it just kind of stood out. So he's like strapped. I mean, it is a little striking. Both of my spouse and I noticed this. A lot of the thing involves him being strapped down as a white guy with like non-white people circulating around him in power. So who, mm -hmm. who knows what to make of that? Anyway, so the his first experience is he plays whack-a-mole with this new technology, which basically implants virtual reality. Like he just sees first this very pixelated whack-a-mole and then he sees like, oh my God, it's a real three-dimensional cartoon mole. It's really cute. And then they're like, oh, you're responding well to this technology. Let's take you up to the next level. And he's like, cool. Uh, so then they implant something more intense in him, which is going to give him the ultimate survival horror experience that's going to generate it, the horror, from his own personal fears. And at this point, you're like, oh, I see. Now we're at a Black Mirror episode, right? So he gets plugged <laughs> into this room, and then, you know, then it's just him in a creepy mansion, and then just, like, all kinds of creepy stuff happens. It's obviously being drawn from his memories, like there are spiders, and then his childhood bully that was name-checked, and then the bully merges with a spider, and then Sonia shows up, and at first she's like, oh, I'm gonna rescue you. I'm the journalist. Creepy stuff is going on, and then she attacks him, and obviously it's part of the whatever, and he's all like, oh my god, I thought I was supposed to feel pain, but I'm being stabbed, and I feel real pain, and they're like, we're gonna get you out, and then he has to do all the stuff to get out of the apparent virtual reality, and then he can't. There's all the stuff where it's seen, and at some point, like at this point, any real watcher of sci-fi is like, oh, he thinks he's out, but he's not out. This is like layers of Inception stuff, obviously, and so as it goes on, it turns out that what we find out is one, his dad. Uh, it w revealed earlier in the episode is that his dad died of Alzheimer's, and towards the end of this, he clearly like can't remember who he is, doesn't recognize who he is. And of course it's like, oh yeah, his deepest fear is not spiders, it's Alzheimer's. And then they apparently get him out. And I think once again, any real watcher of sci-fi sitting there being like, he's not out, he's still in virtual reality, obviously. So he goes home, he sees his mother who also is obviously descending into Alzheimer's and then everything goes crazy and suddenly you realize that at the last moment, the big reveal, is that 0.04 seconds into the test, his mother had called him and the signal from his cell phone, which was turned on, interfered with the equipment and he's dead. And everything we saw was simulated in his brain in 0.04 seconds and the end. We're out of the inception.
Yeah. yeah. Okay. So that that was like the most animated and awesome summary I've had so far on this podcast. Five out of five stars would definitely visit again. Very good <laughs> job on that. Yeah. Let's just jump in. So I'm first of all, so glad to hear you say that this episode is about Alzheimer's and not about gaming culture, which it's, I think a lot of people do think it's about gaming culture. Yeah, I actually, so I read your post on this after, only after I had had my own thoughts about it. And I, I mean, I agree <laughs> Noted. That it, it's very clear that the people behind this podcast thought they were doing something about gaming culture, but it seems like barely, if at all, about games and its worries about gaming mm-hmm. culture seem really, I mean, there's, first of all, it's much more about virtual reality. And second, like, it's, we can talk more about the details, but its take on gaming culture is so distant from what actual gaming culture is. It's definitely, like, I think other uh, Black Mirror episodes are like, they're about social media. The makers of the makers definitely are really involved in social media, really know what it's like to have a phone. But a lot of this felt like, oh, they just have this vague sense of, like, you know, maybe their teenagers play games, but they don't actually have... They're like, oh, gamers like to be immersed in virtual reality. But it's not, it's very imprecise on the details about gaming. It is very precise on the details about the horror of losing one's mind. I think you were like totally right about that. And so, so yeah, it's, it's gamingness is very distant. Yeah. So why don't we do this kind of in reverse and talk about the gaming part of it first, since you are an expert on games and then we can come back to the madness or, you know, psychological disintegration later, because I I think you're, first of all, exactly right. I had never thought about this, but it is kind of written as if the writers had kids that played games, but they don't really themselves understand games. Now I will say I am not a gamer, I do teach a lot about technology and, you know, obviously have a lot of students who are gamers. And so I feel like I've learned a lot over the last few years, but as somebody who studies games, well, what do you think about this game? So first thing is it's not a game. There's no like (laughs) game involved. I'll give you a little bit of maybe flat footed analytic philosophy of games. And then maybe I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about, what's weird about the account of games here. So Bernard Suits assigned games as the voluntary attempt to overcome unnecessary obstacles. Really what he meant was in games, you're given constraints and affordances, and then you're given a goal, something you need to achieve, and then things that are in your way. And it's so clear that what game designers do, when you look at like blogs about game designers, and you look about game designer talk, they're designing the system where you have a goal and a target, and then you're trying to get there through certain things that are in your way, but you know what you're doing. And the way this episode sold that game, it didn't seem like anything a game designer would make, right? It was like, it was completely out of their control. Now, I mean, it totally seems like somebody like Elon Musk, some Silicon (laughs) Valley virtual reality type, what might make this thing that was like, we're just going to plug something into your brain. It's going to find your worst nightmares and just give them to you. And you're like, okay, maybe, maybe Elon Musk thinks that's a cool idea. Or maybe someone who's really into the idea of virtual reality thinks that's a good idea. But I don't think that's how a game designer thinks, right? 
Yeah. Like that's that's not a thing they've and and the story sold this team is like we make games, right? We make things that people love to play and get through. And then we're just going to create this technology that we have no control over and just plug it into your brain and let it like resuscitate your nightmares. Games are different from like random nightmares and this the episode didn't seem to understand that difference. Well, there's this really brief but interesting conversation between Cooper and Saito, the CEO of this game company, just as he comes in. And Saito says, you know, when you are afraid in a game and then you come out of that, why does that feel good? And Cooper is like, well, it's an adrenaline rush. And Saito says, no, it's because you realize that you're still alive. And there's this really brief conversation where basically Saito says, this is what's really great about these virtual reality games that he's creating is that they give you this super immersive experience in order for you to work out your fears and, you know, whatever. But then it feels good when you come out because you realize it was just a simulation. Now that, try this try this out idea out for size. That to me does not sound like a game. That sounds like exactly how Aristotle described tragedy, right? Like theater, like that's what that is. Yeah, no, I, the aestheticist in me, by the way, I, I do philosophy of art. And when he said that, I was like, that's an aesthetic theory, and that's really interesting, but that's not a theory about games, right? That's right. a theory about roller coasters, maybe, and maybe horror movies, but it's not a theory about games. So do you know the background stuff about, like, the philosophy of sublimity and horror and all this stuff? Yeah. So there's actually a few related theories. So Aristotle's theory of catharsis is... What we do with tragedies, we, we're full of this emotion, and then we need to feel that emotion intensely to wring it out of us. And that's not a particular story about fear or survival. That's like any, like anger or, right, that's, that's one. Yeah, p- pity and fear, the examples right. that he uses, yeah. So Burke has this other really interesting theory where he thinks that, <laughs> this is Edmund Burke, like, he... He has this theory that our emotions are really useful, and a lot of the negative emotions are really useful, like disgust and fear. They get us to mm-hmm. like run and not eat stuff. But since we tend to avoid things that are fearful or disgusting, those emotions can fall out of practice. And so nature gave us this desire to take pleasure in mild amounts of disgust or fear so that we would have a reason to exercise those emotions. So he actually has this general theory. It's like, look, it feels good to exercise. And nature gave us that so we could exercise our muscles that don't atrophy. And nature also gave us a pleasure in exercising fear and disgust so we'd exercise those emotions too. So when the lion actually like jumps out of the trees, our fear response will be trained and ready and well lubricated. But like Sato's theory in this is a different one. His theory is specifically you feel good because you know you're alive. And that's a weird theory because in order for that to work, you actually have to be genuinely afraid or worried that you will die. So there's this really common theory that people like coming close to things that feel scary when they know the whole time they're safe. But Sato's theory is more like, no, no, oh my God, you have to actually be afraid of your life in order to really feel alive. And I think, I mean, that's a theory I have also found in the mouths of fantasy heroes. But 
my worry is that that's not a theory that a game designer would make. It felt to me like cooked up by the writers to justify this particular horror sequence. Like that's the kind of person that would cook up this kind of technology. I agree with you that that's not the kind of theory that a game designer would cook up. But I I do think that sounds to me exactly, or at least equivalent to basically Aristotle's theory, right? right? This is the role of recognition in tragedy is that Oedipus has to be recognizable enough to me that I can imagine his fears and horrors and struggles as my own. Part of the catharsis is that I can feel this pain and fear and pity, but it's not me. I'm not actually gouging out my own eyes. I did not actually sleep with my mother or kill my father. And so when the tragedy is over, it does seem to me like exactly what Saito says. Like the reason it feels good is that it wasn't me. I had the whole experience of this without actually risking anything. But I want to get back to why that is not a game. And because I I totally agree with you, that is not a game. And the, the way this episode is written acts as if games and theater are the same. Yeah. You know, and so I want to ask you this question, which I've always wondered, is it a necessary component of a game that it's possible that you win? That's that is a great question. So a few observations. One, some games have no victory conditions at all, but there's a goal that you're trying to achieve, which is not losing or lasting as long as possible. So Suits points this out, like there are video games like this, like Endless Runners, but we have old ones, like let's keep the ping pong volley going as long as possible, right? There's not a binary win condition, there's a binary loss condition, but there's a goal we're aiming at, which is trying to go as long as possible and we can do better and better at it. So here's another question. Is it possible to have a game where you can't make any headway at all against the obstacle? Suits' definition is just games have obstacles that we have to try to overcome. So technically by that definition, sure. A question we might have is why would you ever create such a thing? Because I think one of the basic experiences that people enjoy with games is the possibility of exercising agency. So one of my background theories about games is one of the reasons we like games so much is a lot of the times in life, like we just don't fit with the world. Like it's the world is this like awful, overwhelming thing and our values don't match with it and our abilities don't match with it. And things are either way too boring and easy or way overwhelming and difficult and we're helpless. And games offer these us these constructed environments where we can have the experience of being perfectly fit, of having just the right abilities. Like Super Mario Brothers, you have one ability, which is running and jumping, basically. And then the world is full of stuff that's just barely what you can jump over. So you just fit. Now, that's that's one of the standard pleasures of games, but that's not necessary. Why would you create a game in which you couldn't succeed? So there's definitely games in which success is insanely hard. There are all these games where the control scheme fights against you. Like, so... Bennett Foddy's Getting Over It, or here's a game you'll love, Octodad, The Dadliest Catch. It's a game in which you're playing a dad who's an octopus, and you have to control the tentacles individually with your controller, and the control scheme is awful. Like, it's incredibly hard to do anything, and it's this expressive experience of clumsiness, but also the game makes it possible for you to eventually, awkwardly and painfully, finally start to move. And that, I mean... There's a very special thrill 
in being able to actually overcome this thing that was like this control mechanism, which is so hard. I think there are a few cases of games which are definitely like very arty games where there's no real ability. So the best, what's this game called? Uh, I played an arty indie game called, I think it was called Hospice. And it was like The Sims, except you were taking care of someone in hospice care and it was just dying. And there was just no nothing you could do. Like oh, you God. kind of trade off a few things against each other and and like your various abilities start declining, your little character moves slower, slower, and then you die. And that's, but I mean, that is the mechanisms of a game, but you like play it once and you're like, oh, that's cool art. And then no one like plays it again. So it's, it's fairly striking that, that that's a respectable thing, but it's not like something people play again. So let me ask you this question then. Can you imagine a game that would be properly called a game in which the whole aim of the game is simply to experience it. Because this is what it does seem to me that the writers of this episode imagined, is that let's, you know, present this scenario in which the experience itself is the game and just surviving it or enduring it or coming out on the other side of it and being able to give an account of it is winning or whatever. Sure. Yeah. So first of all, I should say, I don't think there's any good definition of a game. I think like there's like, it's a colloquial term that's super fuzzy. There are a lot, people call all kinds of things games. This definition I'm using is like one particular definition that helps me think about things. Sure. You can call whatever, there are tons of things you can call a game. Second, there's, I mean, so the question of, is there some, something that's a game that's just there for you to experience it? I think there are a lot of games where the point is to experience it, but the experience you're after, the experience is the experience of trying to struggle over something. By the way, have I ever told you my stupid games argument? No, please do. Oh, you might like this. So this is <laughs> this is the center. This is the most. Okay, uh, I'm not supposed to say stuff like this, but this is the philosophical thing I've come up with that I'm the proudest of, and I will never surpass. Here it is. So in the games book, I distinguish between two kinds of play: achievement play and striving play. Achievement play is trying to win for the value of winning. Striving play is trying to win for the value of going through the struggle, typically for the experience yeah. of the struggle. So lots, by the way, I think it's obvious that a lot of people are striving players. There are a lot of people in philosophy, like in philosophy of sport, who think, and, and a lot of moral philosophers who are like, no, that's, that's nuts. That's wild. Why would you think that? The only kind of play is like for the value of being excellent and winning. And so I had to come up with an argument. So here are two arguments. One argument is so a lot of times my spouse, Melissa, who's sitting right here in our home office basement in COVID <laughs> times, we play games and we're evenly matched. And sometimes at night when I'm insomniac, I come across a strategy guide. And right now the games are awesome. They're really interesting. They're great balance. But if I read the strategy guide, I'll just win easily all the time. And I know she'll never do it. She doesn't read strategy guides. And so I don't read the strategy guide because that would make the games boring. And that shows right. that I don't right? I'm, I'm not in it to win it, right? I'm just trying to win as hard as I can during the game. But in the long term, I'm manipulating myself to not be as good so the game can be as interesting. That's one argument. Here's the other argument. Here's, here's my favorite one. Consider the category of stupid games. A stupid game is a game where the fun part is failing, but in order to have, to have fun, you have to try to win. Examples are Twister, most drinking games, Telephone, you know, the kids game of telephone, right? Twister, the hysterical part is falling over, but it's not actually funny if you intended to fall over, right? The funny right. part is failure. And so to fit, but in order to experience it as failure, you have to try to win, even though what you want is the comedy of failure. So that 
demonstrates that they're striving games. Anyway, so sorry. So if they're stupid games, they're striving games because that's a kind of thing where what you're trying to do, what you really want is to fail, like the experience of failure, but you're making yourself try to win so you can have the experience of failure. Okay, so that's a that's a weird description of failure to me because it right. does seem that like in those scenarios, what you've done is just simply redefined winning as failure, as opposed to saying, for example, this is a game that I want to only strive in, and right. you know where where the striving is the winning, which it right. does seem to me would have to be a game that is endless or a game in which the end is indeterminable you know a game like for example life right like (laughs) which is what i think that this episode is trying to to do and you know i want to sort of leave my mind open to this possibility of thinking about life as a game right especially given that there's basically a coin flip chance that we're all living in a simulation anyway right right? like but but it does seem that what you're, I mean, I completely agree with you that there are games that we play not, that the enjoyment of the game is not derived from winning. Right. That the enjoyment of the right. game is derived from striving. So let me distinguish between two things. The goal and the purpose. The goal is the thing you're aiming at during the game. And the purpose is why you're playing the game. And they can just be totally different. Like, so we play a game for fun. During the game, I try to beat you. After the game, I don't care at all about whether I beat you. I just care about whether we have fun. So, I mean, the problem here is that winning is a slightly ambiguous term. There, yeah. are two, there are two different things we can talk about. Success at the larger purpose or success at the local goal. So the only thing I'm trying to say, I mean, we can ignore the word winning, is that you can focus on achieving and put your effort into achieving the local goal, even though what you really want is to fail at the local goal. Like, that's the interesting thing. Okay, so this is where my ignorance as someone who is not a gamer is really going to show. But my understanding is that there are games, multiplayer virtual reality games, that are just about, for example, building worlds or interacting with other people, like more or less simulating some life that very closely simulates real life, but that doesn't have a goal. And that the aim of of playing the game is simply to experience that experience virtually instead of IRL. People will occasionally call those things a game, but I think you have to be careful about the difference between virtual reality and a game. Yeah. So there, there are two things that are close by, and I think a lot of people will hear this different. So one is Second Life. Second Life is just a virtual environment. You go and you can do, there's, there's no goals. You can hang out with people, right? You chat with them, you build things. I think, basically, I think people that are very distant from it will call that a game, but I think most people who are really, who are in the culture will be like, no, that's a virtual environment. That's a online environment. That's a hangout right. spot. Where yeah. on the other hand, something like all the farming life simulators, things like World of Warcraft or things like all, all these, like the Japanese farming simulators, it feels like this life where you interact with people and you wander around, but still you're trying to get money for your farm or get experience points and goals. And there's, there's a game structure built into there. And I think those are two really different objects. I use the term game and virtual reality. That's pretty common, but you can call them whatever you want. So, I mean, I think your question is like, is that what Saito is doing in this 
not creating yeah. a game with a goal, but creating like just a virtual experience. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the things where I think we said like, look, this is, his comment sounded less like a game to me under my narrow sense of game and more like what you would hear from like some of the main horror movies, right? Or mm -hmm. haunted houses or something, right? They're trying to give you this experience. You're listening to Black Mirror Reflections, which is mostly a labor of love and is at present ad-free. If you like what you hear and if you're hearing what you like, consider donating to us at patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. That's patreon.com backslash Black Mirror Reflections. And now back to our conversation. So maybe this is a good time to pivot and talk about what the experience that this Saito game is trying to give Cooper in the actual episode, right. which is the experience of fear. And in this case, a really idiosyncratic experience of fear. So what did you think about this part of the episode? Oh, it was so funky. I mean, I wanted to say, first of all, that sometimes I watch stuff like this and I'm like... Yeah, you're you're attaching this fear to like this specific technology, but we don't need like so for example, like one of the things I thought was like, oh, part of the story is based on this thing that well we need to plug his brain in for us to like for the game to convince him it's reality. But I don't think I mean I think games kind of already do that without brain plugs. They don't convince you of the, the, the fictional graphics of the game of reality, but I think like, so I think like Fitbit only like plugs into your brain and tells you what to want and takes over your brain. You don't need fancy brain plugs for that. As I was watching this, I, I had this thought that was like, people are always being like, oh my God, you need like plug in virtual reality simulators to control people's sense of reality. You don't need that. Fucking Fox News already does that, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, I mean, I mean, part of the premise of this episode is that what it is trying to, like the the kind of magic of this technology is that it's yeah. able to get at fears that right. you don't even realize are fears. So right. I mean, okay, confession time. I am super skeptical of psychoanalytic theory in general or this idea that there's some kind of subconscious actual realm that has content that you know like sort of affects us but that we don't have access to but i do think that it is true that there are often things that are operative in the way that we interact with the world that we have not yet made thetic to ourselves right, right. And one of the things that's really interesting about the way that this game is designed, also, remember, this episode was made in 2013. So in advance of the kinds of neural network technologies right. that we understand now that really could do things like this, right? But one of the things I find interesting about it is this idea that if you could sort of create this neural network AI technology, that it would be able to sort of show you things that actually you're afraid of and have you experienced them as if they're real in a way that film can't do, roller coasters can't do, haunted houses can't do, virtual reality games can't do. So one of the keys here is that 
they're basically making an emergent AI machine learning network that can adapt itself to you. I have such complicated fears about whether or not that'll be able to make good experiences. So here's the pitch I could imagine someone making from Silicon Valley. Though something like, look, right now, art has to be made to like broad amounts of people, right? Like it, sometimes it's going for the lowest common denominator, but here we can tailor the experience to you. On the other hand, like, I don't, I don't know how this stuff is going to get trained and whether that training is going to be able to make it be so radically personal. I was actually at a conference about machine learning networks and teaching them to make art. And I was the one philosopher of art in a full room full of like AI people. And one of the interesting things was what the training data looked like. So for example, some people were like, I'm training an AI to make like beautiful photographs. And we were like, so what's your training data? And he said, I'm using the stars on stock.com stock photos to train the AI to make good photos from bad photos. And we're like, wait, hold on. <laughs> Why do you think that's making good photos? Or similarly, like someone else was like, oh, we're going to training an AI to make good stories. And the training data is what makes you binge faster. So I'm, I'm still like, I'm worried that like that kind of like, if you use that kind of input data, like, you get a trash in, trash out scenario. So I'm in the background, I'm a little worried about how you could possibly make at anything like our current level of technology where you could train a machine learning network to do something like this. You, you're, well, you look like you're about to say something. Yeah, because I think that basically the release of GPT-3 yeah. last year changed all of that because now we have a unprecedented, massive neural network machine learning system that is not a recursive learning system. Right. And, you know, I mean, prior to GPT-3, the biggest AI system like had whatever it was, like 10.5 billion right. parameters. Right. And GPT-3 has 175 billion parameters. And right. and unlike every prior recursive, you know, neural network learning system where it appeared that, you know, people in AI say like more data is better. Right. But there does come a point where you throw too much data at recursive learning system and it has diminishing returns. If you have a system that's like, is this a cat or not a cat? Or is this a hot dog or not a hot dog? For those of you who are Silicon Valley fans, at some point, throwing too many pictures of cats or too many pictures of hot dogs are going to sort of distort how, what it works. But what is happening with GPT-3 is that it appears that th they just keep throwing data at it and it just keeps getting better. Yeah. So I'm not entirely sure that I agree that given current machine learning capabilities that something like this is not possible. And I think that part of it is because we don't understand how the learning works. I mean, this is largely black box AI, right? Like right. we don't really understand how it works. We know just even from, I say old AI, but I'm talking about AI from like two years ago. Like even from old AI, we know that it is able to spot patterns and predict with it like incredible accuracy, things about the way that our own minds work that we do not understand and, you know, believe to be unable to be kind of captured in an algorithm. But TikTok's algorithm is, it's, you know, for you algorithm is amazing at getting to what it is that we want that we don't even know we want. Right. So like, why not? Like, why, right. why, why is it so hard to imagine this? Right. I mean, I can imagine it. I'm still, 
well, we can talk about the worries in the background. There's something else here that I think you're talking about that I think the episode exposed, and I hadn't been thinking about how relatively early it is, but the episode was very clear about the degree to which the makers really didn't understand what the technology was doing. Yeah, uh, yeah. The degree to which it was some kind of emergent interface, the emergent system that was beyond their control. And I remember sitting there, and now I'm like, I mean... I'm the expert on the philosophy of games, not like I know shit all about AI, but <laughs> listening to the AI experts in the room talk about their machine learning networks, they were like, we have no idea how this works. Like, do you have any idea how hard it is to even understand vaguely what's going on? Like, so there were whole set papers that were just about, now we have this AI that does this. How, what's it thinking? How's it doing it? We don't know. We're trying to explore yeah. its guts to like backwards figure out what it's doing. Now we get up against the worry of like, so, I mean, I'm enough of a sci-fi reader to think someday we'll get AI that's like human-like, right? Or that is fully conscious, somewhere aware, thoughtful, possibly moral, at least as possible as human beings, whatever. At that yeah. point, that's a different story. But in between, there's this thing, and I think this episode is about that moment, where we have networks that are emergent beyond our understanding, that are doing, working in ways that we've sort of trained that we don't really fully understand, that are not yet like thinking reflective things that we can talk to and talk about what they're doing, right? And that in between, I mean, the other, the other version, the full post-humanity transcendent version has its own fears, but this thing in between, I'm really worried about and that and that listeners is where we are right now yeah. that is that is where we are right now with machine learning i mean yeah. that i i also really love that you pointed out that this episode is one of the episodes that it, i mean it's hard to overestimate how prescient this series is it's only been nine years since it premiered and any number of episodes this being one of them featured technologies that if you and I had been having this conversation in 2013 we would have said yeah maybe in 50 years we have a machine learning system that can do something like this and now a mere seven years later we have machine learning systems that can do things like this and so, there are people yeah. out there who still think that the idea of singularity is like a silly idea. <laughs> I'm like, who, what are you who are those people? <laughs> yeah. Stop we'll toss up about whether we're going to die from climate change, <laughs> wild. <laughs> um, oh, we're definitely going to die of climate change before before robot overlords. You, sh you uh, think so? Or as I like to, as I like to call them, cobots. Conclusion of this episode, please make sure to check out our post at readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com. That's readmorewritemorethinkmorebemore.com, where we'll include a list of further readings, references, and links to things that we talked about in this episode. Now back to the conversation. <laughs> you, I don't. I want to know why you think that it's so. I mean, given the pace of everything, it's a total toss-up to me. Like, I mean, we could have AI singularity next year. That would be unsurprising to me. Like, why yeah, are you so I, sure it'll be? Well, I mean, okay. So I'm going to invite you back after I finish this whole Black Mirrors podcast series. I'm going to 
probably, I think I'm going to start a whole nother series. It's just to like talk about philosophy and technology right. and stuff like that. I want to invite you back for that. But my short answer is that I, I do think that we have this kind of largely ungrounded assumption that a consciousness that might be enough like ours that we could recognize it as an intelligent consciousness would make the same mistakes that we do. So I think that there's this assumption that if machine intelligence became self-aware and was able to act on its own drives or wills or whatever, that it would immediately want to dominate and eliminate its intelligent contesters. That seems to me to be a uniquely human way of thinking, largely derived from our tendency to think about ourselves not as a node in a system, right? Not to think about ourselves as, you know, a species or a system, but to think about ourselves as individuals. It seems to me that this would be one of the first intelligent pitfalls that machine intelligence would avoid, which is the kind of promotion of, you know, individuality above collectivity. So, I mean, I, I don't think that when I'm thinking about this stuff, I'm thinking like, oh, I'm not imagining, oh my God, they're going to be like us and they're going to be overlords. Yeah. It's, I, I buy like, so Werner Vinge's original notion of singularity, I think was something like once machine intelligence ramps up enough enough quickly we have no idea what will happen after that and that's that's the yeah. thing where i think like i have no reason to think that the that any machine intelligence would be like humans or reason in any humanly recognizable way and so what comes out of that is this wild roll of the die the values should be so skew that they do not recognize us as beings to preserve yeah right? not to not I think that's a fair concern. And I mean, I think that what you're saying echoes the kind of Nick Bostrom's yeah. paperclip scenario, that they could be totally unconcerned with us or like in their ranking of concerns that right. we would not rank highly. And maybe we end up in something, maybe you and I, humans, maybe humans in general, end up in something like zoos, which honestly, given the way that we're running the world, would, would actually not be a terrible future, right? Like to actually in, right. end up in something like a zoo. But it's difficult for me to imagine a technological singularity that does not actually improve our situation. Right. Um, so, so hold on. I, I have, I have, I have something to. I, I have a way to reconnect us to this episode. Okay, thank you. Because I was like, I was, <laughs> like, like I was over, I was over here, like looking around, trying to find a thread. It's it's the paperclip worry, right? So if you, so for people in the audience that know don't know, I think the best way to experience this is actually to play the game Universal Paperclip, which has you like wake up as an AI, and the backstory is you were designed to manage a paperclip factory, and now you're sentient, and your goal is to make more and more paperclips. It's very clear that like a fiftieth of the way through the game, you've killed all humans, and you've been, right. like it, it, you have to figure this out as a player that you've done this because you've just like trans from the solar system into paper clips. So the worry again is about machine learning networks and what they're targeting. In some ways, maybe this will be clear. I have no idea what the fuck will happen when, if there's sentient <laughs> AI that wakes up. But in between, 
we're going to get machine learning networks that are trained by corporations to do things. And that is the, that is what's going to kill us. <laughs> yeah. No, this is this is the worry, right? Maybe, maybe. I'm feeling like I'm sitting by the bedside of almost sentient AI and shaking it, trying to make it wake up <laughs> because what, <laughs> what we have right now is killing us. Right. So there's this, this thing, I don't have it quite right from like hanging out with my friends who are philosophers, real philosophers of technology who know a ton about computer science and the way it works in the real world. Right now, machine learning networks that are built and targeted are as good as we define the target. And there's certain kinds of targets that it's easier to get. So the basic idea is if you need to train something on a target, and if it's not a target the AI invents itself, but we need to provide that on a mass scale, then we're gonna need some simple filter to do it. And so what it looks like, if Netflix has an AI, right, is building them a sub-sentient machine learning network to build its programs, it's very hard for it to target the rich, the beautiful, the subtle, the humane. It's very easy to target addictive or binge work. Yeah, this is called under-specification for those of you who are familiar with machine learning, right? Like, yeah. Wait, can you, can you define under-specification a bit more? So a lot of times in AI and machine learning, you'll hear people talk about what you need is a lot of clean data, right? So what you're describing is data that is not clean, that is sort of under-specified, under-defined. And actually, philosophers should easily be able to identify with the problem here, right? Is that any time that you have terms that are underspecified or underdefined or vague or unclear, they lend themselves to misinterpretation, misunderstanding, misuse, and abuse. Yeah. And same thing. Yeah. yeah. No, so the, the real worry here is, maybe this is right. So the real, it's a distraction right now when you're talking about this episode to be worried about like emergent AI fully waking up and being sentient or whatever. The thing right. you should be worried about is large scale profit oriented corporations getting access to powerful machine learning networks, especially connected to technology that can integrate them with our brains. So in the likely scenario I'm imagining, like if a game maker, something like the Sado game has access to technology is actually training a machine learning network what's it going to train it on what are the targets it's going to train it on right it's yeah. not going to be something complicated it's going to be like most fear possible i'm not sure like most fear possible or most addictive like what's the what's the most i mean actually we we know what the target's likely going to be most people right now are targeting longer engagement hours the more time on device you can get so have you read by the way have you read natasha dashville's addiction by design i haven't yet no you should read this book so this is a book from, a, I think she's an NYU anthropologist. It's a study of Las Vegas, the design for gambling that emerged out of video poker design and yeah. how Vegas figured out that the way to make money was not big money players, but time on device players, people that played penny slots for right. weeks. And so right. they figured out, look, what we need to do is build machines that just get people to sit there. And they got really good at this. They got good at figuring out exactly what the timing of rewards and difficulties were for you to stay there. So after she publishes this book, she writes a bunch of articles. She was like, oh, by the way, the same engineers have been hired by Facebook and Zynga and Blizzard to make World of Warcraft, to make the experience point bling, to make your Twitter noises. All that stuff is just is from the technology of getting you to increase time on device. And this is actually my biggest worry about this kind of interregnum that we're in right now, which is yeah. that we are building extremely powerful AIs that have an impact on our actual daily IRL lives 
that are built on faulty, underspecified, or worse, prejudicial learning data. And what we know, we know this, we know this from, well, most obviously from predictive policing. What we know is that these create feedback loops. So let's imagine Saito Games builds a game that's meant to make us afraid and is also meant to extend butt in the seat time, right, right, for this game. What's going to happen is that it's going to train us to be afraid of the things that are in the game. And that's going to become a kind of cultural phenomenon that these are the things to be afraid of, which actually reminds me of a whole nother Black Mirror episode, Men Against Fire, which I don't know if you've seen it, but what kind of plays on this same idea. Like what if we had a sort of brain machine interface that could interfere in what people literally see as threatening or worthy of being feared? So yeah, I mean, that's my worry right now is that exactly what you say, that this is right now, this is a corporate enterprise. And so I I feel like a lot of times people kind of talk in these kind of sci-fi film ways about being afraid of technology. And what they really need to be afraid of is humans, you know, Bezos, Musk, Zuck, Jack. I act like these are all my friends. (laughs) Our buds. Yeah. Yeah, no. Somewhere when I was working on the book, I realized that I thought people were totally afraid about the wrong thing with games. That people thought it was like Grand Theft Auto and like, you know, the display of violence. But I I mean, I've never seen anything that says that violence in games is any different from like violence in like The Sopranos or something. What I'm really afraid of is targeted addictive design. It's weird because like this episode's like, oh my God, what if someone makes a, a bot? a machine learning network that helps you explore your greatest fears. And maybe the response should be like, that makes for a good horror episode, but that's not actually the horrifying thought. That'd be kind of cool. That'd be like a therapy bot. What we should be actually afraid of is like someone gets like brain network technology is like, I'm going to make the neural network plugged in version of Candy Crush. It's going to be boring. <laughs> it's going to be just interesting enough to keep your butt in your seat. It's going to give you just the time. I mean, one thing we know from this is you don't want, for the addictive loop, you don't want too much intensity and too much like failure. What you want is just a little bit of difficulty, just a touch, and then a little bit of satisfaction, a steady stream. That's <laughs> basically how I run my classes. <laughs> Keep the butts in the seats. <laughs> right. like, maybe Sato Games in this is like, ooh, what if we're in a horror movie forever? We're like, eh. Yeah, nobody wants to be in a horror movie. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, that money. He even explains that. And like we mentioned this earlier, he even explains that in that first conversation. Like you have to be able to come out of it and have that feeling of I'm still alive because that's the that's the addictive hook. You know, I want to go back to it, right? Some kind of indefinitely extended experience is not an addiction. Like it has to stop and start and stop and start and stop and start. Although a lot of the machine technology is not very stop and start. It's very like, it's like a 30 second to one minute loop where the little challenge, little reward, little challenge, little reward. You can keep some on that for days yeah. and days. The thing yeah. I was saying was like, the th- maybe the thing we shouldn't be afraid of is the creation of augmented reality, hyper real horror games. We should be really afraid of hyper real, mildly pleasant, <laughs> chill, casual games that will just, <laughs> with even more potency. Yeah, mild stimulation. That's going to yeah. be a good drug. That, that's a hell of a drug. Yeah. 
so as you know, and I'll post this in the episode notes to this podcast, I did write a longer essay about how I thought that what this episode was really about was Alzheimer's, about the fear of the kind of disintegration of the mind. But you also mentioned that right at the beginning. So let me hear from you first. I mean, I think I think you have it exactly right that like this is as a fear of an actual piece of technology, like as we've already talked about, this is not the technology that scares me, something to the left of this. What as a meta using vague gesturing at VR to tell a metaphor about an experience of mental degeneration, I think is really the heart of the episode. So I, to be honest, I wasn't quite as quite convinced by you at the efficacy of telling that story, mostly because I thought it was like way too fast. He had all his mental faculties up until a certain moment. And then it was just this rush of being people being like, what do you know? He's like, I don't know anything. I don't know anything. Like, I mean, yeah. I think a much more potent way of doing it. Actually, I mean, Philip K. Dick did it in Ubik. <laughs> Right. Mm -hmm. If you remember Ubik, I think Ubik is actually the better version of this episode. It's actually about mental generation. And what happens is without someone telling you immediately, there are all these things that like he put something somewhere. And the next time he goes for it, it's not there. And the story doesn't make a quite a big deal out of it. So like the world just starts reorienting itself and not making sense. And it lets you feel it from the inside. This episode was more like, do you remember anything? And him just screaming, I don't remember anything. I don't remember anything out of like nowhere with no slide in so it didn't quite give me the horror that it gave you yeah i think you're exactly right about that criticism of just kind of the structure of this episode i feel like the ending of this episode has a kind of triple shot of gotcha yeah. moments and my first impression after watching it was like three writers in the room had a great idea for the ending and they were right. like, okay, all of them. Right. <laughs> right? They didn't all really hang together. Right. But I do think that even though it's obviously dramatically compressed, that the story that it tells is ultimately about how really what we're afraid of is losing a sense of the integrity of our own minds. Right. You mentioned the Philip Dick book, but it also really reminded me of that I think it was about Harlan Ellison. There's this really short story called I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream. Reminding me of that sort of at the end, you know, this kind of just evacuation of agency. And, right. and I just want to say as somebody, I mean, I've had people in my own family succumb to Alzheimer's and dementia. And it is a, it is a bitch. Like it is a mean, horrible disease and it is it is my greatest fear i you know i think i actually do you know this is a kind of different area of technology but i really do believe that over the next 10 or 20 years that the kind of big tech legislation that we're going to see is going to entirely have to do with end of life issues we got ahead of ourselves with biomedical technology and being able to extend life but the end of life is just awful for most people right now. It's awful and it's long. And so I actually do think the episode is really effective at communicating the horror of a complete sort of disintegration of the self. But but yeah, I totally agree with you that 
it, it happens in, in sort of quick order and is a little bit sloppily done. I was just thinking, since we were talking so much about catharsis, that it's relatively common to find cathartic, relieving horror material about disgusting things, about on xenophobic themes, on themes of being overwhelmed, also on themes of dying. But yeah. I I know of very little that's incredibly effective about the horror of losing one's mind. And I wonder if that's just significantly harder to do effective cathartic material about because it's not like, maybe it's the slowness. I, I don't know exactly why. Yeah, I mean, there are films about Alzheimer's and about various forms of psychopathy, schizophrenia, addiction. And I do think that addiction should be sort of kept in the realm here of, of how one kind of loses a, a sense of self-integrity. But they're largely not cathartic films yeah. because, because they can't be, because they're... There is no, as Saito says at the beginning of this episode, there is no coming back to the whole self and saying, but I'm still alive, right? Like the end of madness is the elimination of the self who could say, but I'm but still why alive. Is, but why is there cathartic material about death then, which is also about the end of the self? Well, because it's the, the catharsis in those films are about the mourners, not about the right. dead, right? Right. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I was thinking back and I was thinking, it's interesting that, in fact, you're right, Harlan Ellison is good at it. Good at it. Philip K. Dick is so good at it. Like those, do you remember the story of his where he's just recycling through his childhood memories? So there's a story where he's reliving bad moments from his life over and over again in a loop and they're all a little weird. And finally you figured out that he was like the pilot of some kind of freight ship moving between the planets. And there was some catastrophic failure and he was put into like slow sleep or something. And the AI computer is like, we were trying to save your mind but, and keep you from going nuts by recycling your memories. And he's like, couldn't you give me happy memories? And he's like, no, those didn't work. Like, they didn't keep, <laughs> yeah. like we had to give, we had to recycle your bad memories. He's like, how long is it left? He said, it's about 10 years there. He's like, how long have I been in here? He's like, an hour. And then the story just ends. And that story is really effective. It reminds, maybe, maybe the real source for a lot of the stuff is Kafka. There's a lot of stuff that has this mm -hmm. like truly unsettling sense that the world is not as it should be. Things are not quite where they're the logic of things. So some people call it like dreamlike, but it always feels me more like the melting of your ability to make sense of things or the, um, yeah. and those are the closest I know to the sense of like, I mean, they're both really good examples of what I think another, like maybe controversial thing that this episode is trying to convey both the Philip Dick and the Kafka examples that you, you give which is that the core of our sense of self, of the integrity of our consciousness, of who we are, are painful things. Our fears, our heartbreaks, our worries, our sadnesses, and not our happy memories. Uh, that's what holds us together. And when, when we get all the way down to those kind of root conscious elements and begin to disintegrate those the whole structure falls apart which is really sad <laughs> i'm fine with it 
at the bottom of me is my pain and suffering. I am, I am, I am not fine with it. And I imagine probably to people like you and probably to a lot of our listeners, the most horrifying thing that we can imagine, which is not really as happens at the beginning of this episode, playtest, childhood bullies and spiders and things that go bump in the night. Those are not really terrifying. The really terrifying thing is this idea that I would not have control of my own mind anymore, that I would be lost and confused and possibly frightened by my own experience because I just wouldn't be able to put the pieces of the puzzle back together anymore. That's horrifying. Okay, so we're unfortunately running sort of over our time, but at the end of every episode, I always ask three questions and the same questions every time. So I'm going to ask you these questions just all in a row and you can answer them all in a row. So the first question is, what do you think is the lesson that we should take from this episode? The second question is, what about the world or the technology or anything in this episode worries you the most or concerns you the most? And the third question is, on a scale of one to 10, with one being a nightmarish dystopia and 10 being a kind of perfect utopia, where does this episode fall? So, go. Yeah. Uh, I think one or two have the same answer for me, which is to be worried about technologies that run out of our control while we still have the vague corporate ability to target them, but don't quite understand exactly what their innards are doing. The show's pretty clear that that's pretty terrifying, and I am also genuinely terrified by that. On a scale of one to 10, one being dystopic, I'm gonna say four, you know? And I should note that that's where I think the world is. Like, okay. it's a fairly accurate representation. Oh my God, the show's about gaming companies using technologies to get inside our brains. When will that ever happen? It's happening now, dude. So yeah. Yeah, no, I think I might agree with you too. I might put the world more at a five, but but yeah, I totally agree with you. This is about a four. T, this was so much fun. I'm so glad that you came into this. I want to go ahead and extend you an invitation to come back either to talk about another episode here or to do, you know, talk with me about whatever it is that we do next. I do want to tell listeners again that you can check out the episode notes for this and please do check out uh, T's book, Games Agency as Art. It was just published by Oxford University Press. I want to give T a chance to plug anything else. You got anything else you want to plug? No, that's the book. If you're interested in the stuff I was talking about, about that stuff, go read the book. And the end of the book is all about how Twitter gets inside your brain and soul and points. Uh, yes, I love it. All right, thanks so much, T. Thank you. You've been listening to Black Mirror Reflections. Check us out and please subscribe on Apple, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you download your regular podcasts.